Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all-music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Our guest today is Daniel Ephraim, an old friend who's also the producer of the Steve Keen art book. Welcome, Dan. Howdy, Steve. Great to uh, chat with you. Definitely. It's been a while and, uh, you know, I've followed your photography, but this is a really cool new project and uh, we'll tell our listeners about it and what they can do to get involved. But for those who don't know the name, who is Steve Keen? Steve Keen is probably most well known for his artwork done for indie rock bands like Pavements, Wowie Zowie, Record Cover, and many covers for the Apples and Stereo, and artwork collaborations with other indie rock artists like Palace Brothers, Soul Coughing. I even did some work for Dave Matthews. He is probably not known for this yet, but what we're hoping to do with the book is to make sure that people realize that he perhaps is the most prolific American painter of all time. Yeah, that's definitely true. And uh, listeners, look up the name Steve Keen and the images, because as you write in your introduction, Dan, in the 90s, you could not avoid Steve Keen paintings. I was really lucky to be in, in New York in, in the early mid 90s and be working in the music business. And uh, really, basically the time period that Steve moved from Charlottesville, Virginia, where he's uh, from, to New York in the early 90s. And this is where he really gained a foothold is through the music world and selling his paintings very inexpensively at the merch table, really, uh, at indie rock shows around New York City. This was really my introduction to Steve, kind of connecting the dots, if you will, between seeing some of his artwork on album covers that I was buying or listening to, as well as then going to a the thread waxing space or another legendary club in, in, in New York uh, called Brownies uh, or CBGB's gallery, where he was able to show his work and sell it very affordably. And this was really my introduction, not just to his work, but also to the idea that I could own uh, originally made handcrafted artwork that was um, affordable and available to me, readily available, so readily available that you could pick up a couple pieces for, you know, 10 or $20 uh, at a time and pick them right there at a, at a gig and walk home with them and have something cool with you. And this was a, a time where like, maybe I could afford a poster <laughs> of like one of my favorite bands or something, or, or a poster of a print of, uh, you know, a famous artist of, that I was interested in. I might be able to afford that, but I was not aware that I could even afford or have something that was originally created uh, for me, for someone who just, you know, had very little income at the time. And so this was, uh, you know, this was something revelatory and I think was revelatory to the whole indie rock community. And that's one of the reasons why I think he was so embraced by the little music scene that we, or, or broad music scene, I should say, that we had here. And you really nailed it there that this book, the Steve Keen art book, is the result of community with fans and musicians, art world types, all coming together to share what he means to everybody. So tell us, what is your role in the book? What stage is the book at? And where can people find out more? Well, I'm the producer of the Steve Keen art book, producer as a, 
a word that I'm more familiar with from the music world and film world that I've worked in. I guess if you're in the book world, it might be considered an editor, a curator of the book, if you will. I, I put together what I hope is a really great overall uh, overarching uh, discussion of Steve Keen and, and his history from his very roots in Charlottesville, Virginia, to how he has uh, put together many shows in New York. And so the whole idea of the book is to try and bring together as many different parts of the community to tell the story of his, his art making and his, his rise and where he is. This was a successful Kickstarter campaign, correct? Yeah. Um, so the book brings together a, a lot of different facets of what I think the best forms of collaboration are. As part of the music scene in the in the 90s here in New York and seeing how Steve had developed his craft and who was interested in his work, et cetera, seeing that, witnessing it, being one of those people, I you know, know who was interested in his work and, and could see who might be able to have an opinion on how important he is to our community. That's, in essence, being the producer of the Steve Keen art book was a combination of really being a, a resource, if you will, a, a person that was in the mix and could figure out how to tell his story best and in, in the most broad terms. And so this book, it was a, a Kickstarter campaign, but it didn't just ask for people to help financially with making the book, which they did. It, it was an idea of how to bring together the massive uh, amount of work that he's done over the years. His estimates is, is that he's produced over 300,000 pieces by hand, all his hand, over the last 30 years. To get a real broad overview of his work took everyone that had you know, that's paying attention to be involved and, and to submit their artworks so that I could make a judgment as to how to best represent a broad cross-section of his work for the book. The book titled The Steve Keen Art Book for a reason. I wanted it to be the definitive book. Who knows if another book will ever be made about him? And I really wanted it to be as broad reaching and overarching as possible to tell the complete story. It wouldn't be as much of a complete story without the help of the 600 people that helped fund the book, but also the dozens and dozens of people that sent me their physical collections of his artwork to my home apartment where I took photos of, you know, 98% of the, the works that are included in the book. So it's a true team effort. And it's a beautiful book. You sent me an early galley and uh, shout out to your graphic designer. It's really beautifully done because there's a lot of written pieces from some, you know, pretty famous musicians about Steve and, and what he meant to them in their relationship. So you want to drop a couple names that, uh, that you reached out to? Yeah, well, first and foremost, like you said, I, you know, as you are a designer as well, uh, you know, with a, a tremendous graphic eye, I have to make sure that Henry Owings uh, from Chunklet Industries, he really put together this book. I mean, I handed him probably a, close to a thousand images and we worked together to, you know, obviously choose which images, but he really designed this book. Uh, from start to finish. I didn't have a, I had an idea of what maybe the the cover should be, for example, but I wanted to leave it in an objective person's eyes, if you will. Uh, I'm way too close to this. What's going to be the best cover? I'm too close to it. I needed an objective eye on it. And Henry is just a, 
he has, he's a real force to be reckoned with. And he has a very definitive opinion. And I, and I respect that. He really was able to not only come up with, I think, a great choice for the cover, but also really implement the whole design in a really artistic way that doesn't overshadow what Steve does, you know, that really lets Steve's work stand out. And that's important too, because the design of the book uh, has to fit the subject. And, you know, Steve Keen's work is so bright and so vibrant. Henry early on made the decision to really make sure that the artwork is the centerpiece. I think it just speaks to the, again, to this community of people that really understand and, and were around as, as Steve Keen was developing his craft. And there's so many others, but, you know, of course, Shepard Ferry is probably the most important of the, of the lot in terms of uh, helping to make sure that this book was a reality and came to life. You've mentioned Shepard Ferry a couple of times. Tell us about his contributions to the book. Really, the book wouldn't have happened without Shepard Ferry and his gallery subliminal projects. When I first started thinking about helping Steve a little bit on the side, just as a friend, one of the ideas was to get him uh, a sh another show somewhere. And I happened to be in LA at the time and had totally forgotten to get in touch with one of my previous contacts who I thought might be a fan was Shepard Ferry. And though I had worked with his design firm before, uh, we didn't have any direct connection really. And I literally blind emailed info at subliminalprojects.com with the subject, Steve Keen, and just put in, hi, don't know if you're a fan or not, but was wondering if we could talk about Steve Keen or something to that effect. And literally within half an hour, I had an email back from Shepard Ferry saying, what can we do? How can I help you? Wow. And I was just totally blown away by that. What ended up happening is he ended up scheduling a meeting the next day for uh, me to meet with uh, his staff and discuss potentially a show. And lo and behold, a show happened at his gallery. And again, without that show happening, this book would never have happened. They asked for photos of every piece that Steve was going to bring to the show, like a gallery would probably ask for, for their catalog, their own catalog, so they can sell it. And so I had to take photos of every piece. And as I was taking the photos, I realized that, oh, wow, this is pretty interesting. Steve Keen doesn't really archive his work at all. You know, his photos are for Instagram or whatever, but he doesn't really, he doesn't archive them. He just gets the work done and puts them out the door. People buy them six for $70 sight unseen. They don't get to choose what they get in the mail. So there's no reason for him to catalog this in his mind. In the gallery's mind, they needed it cataloged. They needed it inventoried. And in my mind, I thought, oh, wow, well, maybe someday this will be useful. Right. And then after the show happened, which was an amazing thing, it was totally jammed. I think we sold in excess of 500 pieces the first night, which is absolutely insane. And like, you know, you couldn't get into the place. And I started thinking, wow, well, this was pretty amazing. Like, I don't know that I expected this to happen. And I thought, wow, maybe this, maybe this will turn into a book. Let's take a trip back in time. I want to find out, you know, how you learned of Keen. Do you remember where you first saw Keen's paintings? Well, I'm pretty sure I saw some of his work in record stores. I think it was um, great 
small record store uh, in Soho called Rocks in Your Head, where my friend Jeff used to work and a few other people I know used to work. And anyway, I'm pretty sure that I saw a few other artists that had used his work, but didn't necessarily stick in my mind at that time. But really, the thread waxing space was the first time that I remember seeing Steve Keen's work. And that was a art space venue on Broadway. I think it was right above where Canal Jean used to be um, in the in the 90s as well in Soho. It was just basically a, a big loft space that hosted shows, uh, other events and uh, you know, rock shows and art shows. And Steve, again, used to put his artwork from floor to ceiling up on the walls. The big gig that I remember was a Guided by Voices gig where in essence he had one of these floor to ceiling type of shows. And again, he had such a unique way of putting this out there. You didn't pay him directly. He had a basically the equivalent of a tip jar hmm. and you reached up and grabbed, you know, sometimes having to get on a ladder to grab a piece and, you know, put it under your arm so you could get it before someone else did. And then literally it was the honor system and it still is. This is still the way he does things this is the honor system when he has a show you know, you're not paying anyone. You're just sticking some, some cash in a box. And at the end of the night, he opens the box and he's got a bunch of uh, cash and you've walked out with a couple pieces. And the way this started out, I think of this such a, a joyful and loving way of distributing work that everyone should have artwork. Everyone should be able to afford homemade, handmade artwork. Um, and he believes this and follows it through to this day. And I, think that charm really is what I think of when I think of Steve is this this wonderful uh, idealism, if you will. And shortly thereafter, you commissioned him for an album cover you were working with for a label. Is that right? Yeah. You know, over the years, I ended up commissioning, you know, probably uh, more than a dozen times at this point for album artwork. Um, but we ended up doing a Thread Waxing Space live album with the curators of the thread waxing space at the label I was working at at the time. And, you know, it encompassed putting together our work, of course, for the album. And rightfully so, the, the curator of the space thought, well, there's no one else that should do this that speaks to the, you know, the, the ethos of thread waxing space other than Steve Keen. So it became a Steve Keen artwork piece. It also happened to be that Steve was then introduced to uh, burgeoning uh, artist uh, Ryan McGinnis, who is uh, included in the book as well, uh, with a big essay on Steve's process, which I find completely fascinating. Still, I reread it all the time. So it, it, in essence, it introduced Steve and Ryan together and Ryan became a big fan. Hence, Ryan wrote a piece for the book as well. And so again, this is all about kind of connectivity. There's a lot of connectivity in this book. And I, I'd like to think that certainly it's by design. And uh, I'd like to think it makes it a real warm tribute to Steve and, and his work. And Shepard Ferry said in the book that Keene's process is fascinating. You just mentioned that. Tell us about the cage. <laughs> well, Steve, Steve Keene paints in a chain link fence cage every day. And it's basically his easel. Um, it allows him to paint on multiple surfaces at the same time. The chain link fence acts as like an easy way to hook uh, his three eighths inch plywood pieces that are normally, you know, anywhere from 12 inch by 12 inch to more letter size to a little bit bigger 
but there are varying sizes of wood that he puts on this chain link fence and he's able to hook them with his own proprietary hook by making this chain link fence cage it's about i I think it's eight feet high he's able to um you know stack 40 to 60 pieces of wood around him uh literally in like a 360 degree along all the walls and by doing that he's able to paint in essence uh, you know approximately 40 to 60 pieces at a time and that's how he works i mean it's more than this but this is the simplest of breakdowns he has an inspirational photo that he has next to uh, a column of let's say four pieces of uh, wood that are his canvas if you will and he'll have 15 of those different photos so there'll be in essence like 15 columns of paintings going on simultaneously uh, so if you can imagine, he's he mixes paint, you know, do the base coat, the primer coat, and then he'll start filling in the highlights. And it's kind of like screen printing in a way where the first coat is the prime coat. You cover the whole or the majority of the piece. Uh, and then you start to fill in the details with getting down to the final and finer points as time goes on, as he develops it, he layers these different highlights, if you will. And so if you could imagine... He's uh, refining the paintings as he goes. And by the time he's done, four or five hours later in the day, he's you know nearly complete with 40 to 60 pieces that he's done kind of like four-dimensional chess. <laughs> he's painting 15 different pieces four different times all at once. Wow. It's a very like intense kind of game of math almost. So it's like, where's Waldo <laughs> as well? <laughs> well, there's kind of a Warhol factory approach, although his is much more charming. And I would like to point out that some of the pictures in the book of him painting and his process are just astounding. The close-up of the paint cans and these things are, are just unbelievable and really help tell that story. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
We're speaking with Daniel Ephraim. He's the producer of the Steve Keen art book. You know, the book is divided, sort of. It's not formally divided, but to me, anyway, there's the album art tribute, which is how I knew his work. And then there's everything else, kind of. And I want to talk a little bit about both of them. The album art tributes, Keen himself says, quote, I'm making kind of a history of albums. They're monuments to something that doesn't exist anymore. And I have to say that that really hit home for me. Yeah, I mean, Steve is a interesting character for sure. And he's very soft spoken to me. Um, There's a lot of depth there. And when you do get him to start talking, there's, you know, a real understanding of being and a true philosophy. It sometimes takes a bit to get to that point, uh, that trusting point with him. But when he does reveal, it's important and we need to pay attention. And in this case, I agree with you. You know, uh, you and I both, you know, grew up with albums, record albums, and how important they are to us as listeners, as interested parties in art as a whole. He was a DJ starting off in Charlottesville. So the other thing besides original album art, like for Pavement and the Apples and Stereo, a lot of the other work that he does, what we call album art tributes. Album art tributes are, in essence, versions of albums that meant something to him or mean something to him. And that's where the monuments and tributes to these things that, you know, don't exist anymore happen. He's honoring Coltrane. He's honoring The Clash. He's honoring Pixies. He's honoring the Rolling Stones, etc. With some of their more famous album covers he's doing in his own hand. So when you see these, this might register to you or me. And it does, you know, to me, having a replacements album cover done by Steve Keen is something I have tremendous pride in uh, and I love looking at. It's an emulation of this cover of this important album that means something to me, but it's also his take on it. And then there's his, what we consider just hand-painted multiples, which are really anything that comes to mind for him, but usually it's emulating a, a photo or emulating another painting and maybe with some non-sequitur uh, commentary or text that's on it. And to me, these are really fun because whereas the album art tributes are, you know, the album with the title of the album on it, usually, if that's what was done, there's all these non sequiturs that do mean something are irreverent. And uh, how he chooses them, we don't know. But nevertheless, I'm usually impressed with them. Definitely. In one of the texts in the book, and there's a lot of them, Steve himself notes, the music world was my world. That was our community. And so my art kind of mirrors that community. And Eric Allen, the basis for the Apples and Stereo, said, I don't think you can separate Steve from music. It's so important to him. And yet I found it also very interesting to learn that he he found inspiration in cutout bin albums. (laughs) So his choices, you know, they're the very famous ones. Let It Bleed is great. Uh, Television Marquee Moon is great. Uh, You mentioned a couple. Do you have a favorite album cover tribute? And you mentioned you owned The Replacements. Any others? Oh, I mean, I I have too many of them, (sighs) um, but not too many. I mean, too much is never enough, right? Right. (laughs) I I love all of them for different reasons, but some of the more um, esoteric ones are very interesting, like some of the older jazz albums that he played tribute to. Nonetheless, it made me look them up 
Um, but ones that I love and cherish certainly are, uh, you know, Velvet Underground, The Banana. Oh, that's a great one. And I and I have Marky Moon. Well, uh, of course, with us, we have a history. Uh, um, I was just an intern. You were actually an employee, but I have most of the big star right. uh, albums and those are amazing because his version of the light bulb, you know, it's just a, just a beautiful piece. And the, the big star albums were, you know, they chose beautiful art to begin with his, his emulation is, is quite, quite astounding. Of course, uh, London calling and, oh, yeah. and, and some other clash ones are also very important to me too. Yeah, give them enough rope. I love that one. Yeah. It's it. They're just, I mean, I have, I think I have Sandinista, Give Enough Rope, mm -hmm. London Calling. I mean, I've been lucky that I've been able to see a lot of these pieces firsthand. And when we did the show at Shepard Ferry's gallery in LA, I, I mean, I saw ones that I hadn't seen up close and personal live before, and I wanted them all. And like, you know, he sent 800 pieces to that show. So wow. I'd have to like ship all of the pieces that I had shipped. Right. And I couldn't do that, obviously, but it was hard not to like want to grab them all before uh, the show started. So there's a big part of this book that is not about the uh, paintings of other album covers. And I have to say, you know, a lot of still lifes which, and landscapes, which I really, really loved. What I found interesting, at least to me, is I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of his style, but seeing his original work and then going back and looking at the LPs made me appreciate them even more. For me, it brought his talent into a clearer focus. Yeah, I think that I had a mixture of what I was introduced to. I didn't see the album art tributes at first, actually, come to think of it, because the work that he was doing for Threadwack Space and in the 90s, I don't think he was doing as much of that, or I don't remember, I don't recall it. I remember the, you know, more original artwork. You know, he's had a number of different peaks in his uh, notoriety, if you will. And I think that he really came into his own, maybe outside of New York with the album art tributes. But in essence, to answer your thought or to respond to your thought properly, I think that he's a multidimensional artist and it's hard to categorize him in so many ways. You know, there's a section of the book on something that he calls tattooed plywood, which really only hints at what this form is. He did include tattooed plywood in the Shepherd Fairy show in LA. That was its coming out, if you will, but he doesn't sell them. He holds on to them. And it's something rare. He doesn't normally he makes as much as he can get out the door. But these particular types of works that he's working on, um, he's saving. There's a lot to him. There's a lot to discuss. There's not just a lot of voluminous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in volume there's a lot of different styles and i think that's what makes him such an interesting character he also for me as a you know not someone who necessarily uh, had done a deep dive into the art world but as as i was researching and developing the book idea i always thought of steve as an outsider artist but an outsider artist in the art world means that you're untrained um and that you come at it from a completely untrained you know motivation and steve is very trained. He has two degrees in art. He operates in an outsider world, though he's had many, many, many um, exhibitions at galleries and museums. He doesn't really fit into that world because of the just the idea of commerce doesn't really apply to this. It's not a normal art commerce uh, relationship. So there's all these different things to talk about when you talk about styles with Steve. You're talking about 
commerce. You're talking about different types of pieces that he's putting together, a different ethic. So was Steve involved in the book process? And if so, how? Steve was not involved in the book process except for fact-checking. One of the things that was at first very curious to me, but ended up being, I understood it after, after I thought about it more, had more time to reflect, was that he really didn't want to be involved in the book. Hmm. He's interested in painting. He's interested in creating his art. And creating his art is not creating a book. And um, he's also, you know, though I think that he may, I hope, appreciate what we put together, I'm not counting on it. Hmm. (laughs) And I'm also not thinking that he's spending too much time considering it. He is about painting. He gets up each morning really early and paints for hours and creates for hours. And that's what he wants to do. So when I approached him about doing the book on numerous occasions, again, over the course of six years, I asked him on a number of occasions, you know, I'm thinking of starting this up again (laughs) (laughs) and getting this done this time, of course, only to stop and not get it done (laughs) during those times and then go back and ask again and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of continuing this and actually completing it this time. When I did that most recently, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, um, I said, are you sure you don't want to be involved in this further? Whatever you're interested in doing, I'm happy to have you involved for obvious reasons. And he really just, he wants to, from what I understand, again, he's not the most open about this, but I I believe that he just wants to paint. That's what he's interested in. He wants to create himself and the book really isn't something that he's thinking about. Well, I, for one, am glad that you kept at it because uh, it is an astoundingly beautiful book. And all I saw was the PDFs. Can you tell our listeners, uh, I know the Kickstarter campaign's over, but pre-sales are really, really big for authors. What can our listeners do? Where should they go to help this be a success? If you want to check out the book um, and a couple sample pages, go to hatandbeard.com. They're the co-publisher of uh, the Steve Keen art book. Well, Dan, I want to wish you success on this book. It really turned my head around. I remember the album cover tributes, um, but I learned so much more and really his style is just amazing. And I hope this is a huge success because it's beautiful work. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.